0: As I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, today's uh, four-year anniversary. And uh, when I came four years ago, there were certain things that I believe God had laid on my heart about this church, about who we would be, who we needed to be, things that needed to happen. Um, some of those things have happened. Some of those things haven't. Um, and that's as much on me as it is on anybody else. Um I I, I wanted to say that that, um, I I am very pleased with, with overall, with this church's attitude and disposition towards so many things. And I know a lot of that has to do with the the preparatory work that uh, uh, Dr. Sanders did as an interim here before I got here. I know that he he laid some very clear things out uh, to the congregation about things that needed to happen, things that needed to take place. Um, and I'm very appreciative of that it's uh, it's always easy easier uh, never easy it's always easier coming in as a pastor when you've had somebody who's laid some, some groundwork of some very important truths um, that the church needed to face um, that the, 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 the church needed to address and, and we've seen we've seen growth in some key demographics uh, I hate to use terms like that but um, there's really no other way to really express it we've we've seen um, uh, some growth membership wise in, in terms of uh, some younger families um, in terms of some of the ministries that we've started um, we just called this past uh, uh, couple couple months ago a youth pastor uh, we haven't had the need for that or the desire for that or the place for that really here in, in a few years, several years um, we've seen our college ministry grow um, I don't think we had hardly any college students at all when I came. Um, uh, we're, we're running on Sunday, uh, on Wednesdays, we're running somewhere around 17, 18 college students here. Um, um, and, and they're they're a wonderful group. We have such an outstanding group of college students here, y'all. Uh, I, I hope that if you haven't gotten the chance to know them, you'll get to know them uh, even better in the coming year and so forth. Um We've seen some things happen that that need to happen, but we've also seen, we haven't seen some things happen that need to happen. This morning I want to talk just a little bit about kind of the theme for the year, uh, where we're going to be focused and and some of the things that we're going to be doing. And and I want to do that through the lens of a passage that maybe you haven't thought of in in this way, and that's in Matthew chapter 16. It's a very well-known passage. Um, uh, Jesus uh, is dealing with Uh, his disciples, trying to teach them, instruct them in terms of who he is, what he came to do, what he came to accomplish, and and what their role would be in that. And, um, of course, you have, uh, beginning in verse 13, you have the question that Jesus asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they offer up all sorts of options. Uh, Reality we see even today. Who is Jesus? Um, there's all sorts of things coming out, uh, you know, trying to define Jesus. There's a whole series. I'm not even sure who puts it out. It's a it's a it's an advertising series called Jesus Gets Me. Uh, that is, he understands me. And while in some ways that sentiment is obviously true and important, uh, some of the characterizations of how they have portrayed Jesus and what he, quote, gets are not consistent with the biblical understanding. Of who Christ is, um, there is there is much uh, misinformation on who Jesus is in our world today. Um, we've turned him into um, this this pal, this buddy, who's who's tolerant of all things and requires nothing of us. Uh, A. T. Robertson once said, "None are more formidable instruments of temptation." than a well-meaning friend who cares more for a person's comfort than for his character. And I think that's what the church has too often become. Uh, church, and I'm talking about the church universal, interested in, in people's comfort and their ease. How how can we make it easier for people to be a part of us? How can we make it more welcoming and so forth? And, and I want us to be welcoming. I want us to be loving. I want us to be compassionate. I want us to be all those sayings that Christ is and that Christ has called us to be. Loving those who are different than us. Uh, Understanding that uh, people see things through different lenses. But never at the cost of the truth. Never at the cost of God's word. Um, Character matters. And so it's important that we understand who Jesus is. And Jesus points that out by then asking the disciples who you say I. And that's who everybody else says I am. Who do you say I am? And Peter utters that famous, bold confession of faith. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And in that moment, there's just such a sense of of accomplishment, such a sense of, of, wow, yes, Peter, (laughs) You got it, man. You you got it because that's not something mankind can reveal to you. That's something that heaven itself has to have revealed to you. The Father has to reveal to you, and, and Jesus blesses him and acknowledges him. But then we come to verse twenty-five, or excuse me, verse twenty-one, and, and this is where I want to focus in on today is verse twenty-one through twenty-three. So from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, to be killed and to be raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And as I think about who we need to be in the year ahead, where we need to go and, and what we need to be about, that, that, that last sentence there, I think, needs to really characterize our mindset. We, we need to avoid being the people who are not thinking about God's concerns, but instead are focusing on human concerns. We need to have our mind set on the things of God. We need to have our, our heart set on the things of God. As we look at our future, we need to, to see that the truth embedded in this passage is that the future expectations, of the future calling, the future realities of this church are grounded very much in requirements that have always been present. Notice what it says here. It says he must go to Jerusalem. Now why did Jesus have to go to Jerusalem? Well, why, why Jerusalem? Why? I mean, he could have been, I mean, the Roman soldiers actually had a lot more control and a lot more influence and a lot more sway up in Galilee. He could have been easily crucified up in the region of, of Galilee or Caesarea Maritima or, or those re, up, up in the north. Why did he have to go to Jerusalem? Because according to the Old Testament Scriptures, Jerusalem is the the only place where sacrifice could be done. The book of Deuteronomy is very clear that sacrifice can only be accomplished where God's Spirit resides, that is the temple, in that locale, in that place. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem because that's where proper sacrifice would be committed, be carried out. That's where you'd have the mixture of the different voices, the, the different authorities, the Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities, the, the high priest, all of those would be there, all of those interacting to to bring together all the prophecies of Scripture. In other words, what Christ's future expectations were were built upon what? Past requirements, past understandings, past built-in realities. And as we look at who we're going to be, in the coming year, and, and who we're going to be in the, into the future as a church, we we need to we need to maintain some priorities that I think are significant and so easily lost in our culture today. Of course, there is the the, the centrality of Scripture. Next week, I'll begin a, a series uh, preaching through the Book of First Samuel. And a lot of times I, I, I get questions or I get um, some some odd-looking uh, appraisals. Why do you preach through books? Because when you look at a lot of churches, a lot of churches that are the biggest, the pastors there don't preach through books anymore. They, they go topical. Or uh, even if they do quote, focus on a book, they don't actually preach through it. They, they pick some passages throughout, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's some very godly men, there's some leaders and so forth who who, who I respect deeply who take that approach. But I, I, I preach through books for, for um, a couple of reasons. Number one, biblical literacy. We live in a world where people don't know the Bible anymore. And I'm shocked sometimes in my, in my Old Testament, New Testament classes that I teach. Uh, just the basic things that are no longer known, who individuals are, what, what basic stories are, um, so forth. And it's because we've largely abandoned the Bible in our preaching and teaching. We've gone to instruction of how to live your life, but we haven't really focused upon the basis for where that knowledge comes from. I do it for contextual understanding. I think it's important for us to to see passages passages that we build our lives around in terms of their context. What's happened before? What's happened after? How is this building? Where's the argument coming from? I believe that leads to, to biblical thinking. I do it as a means of personal accountability. That it's not my priorities that necessarily are being proclaimed, but I'm beholden to what the text says. There's a subject. There's sometimes there's just subjects I don't like to talk about. But you know what? If the text goes there. That's where you got to go. So it holds me accountable, and I do it because theologically I'm, I I build my ministry around the truth that all Scripture is God breathed, and therefore it's it's what as Paul says there in Timothy, it's it's useful for reproof, for growth, for understanding, and so. That's why I, I, I come at that. It's, it's a past requirement. It's a, it's, a, it's a built-in reality that drives me. I think churches have lost that. I think sometimes churches have lost the, the value of the older generation. The beauty of the hymns. Why do we do blended service here? I know some would, would prefer that we move all the way into contemporary. I know some would prefer we go all the way back to to just hymns. There's that, there's that mix in here. Why do we do blended? Because I believe blended is the best way for us all to be a part of what's going on here. And I believe there's value in the hymns. There's strength, there's beauty, there's depth in the hymns that's t- too often forsaken for the sense of, of show or entertainment but I also believe there is encouragement and hope and, and um, a push toward newness in the, in the contemporary songs, and that both of those are key components of what it means to be a church what it means to, to live in a culture that doesn't know who Christ is to live in a culture that is often driven by uh, other priorities than what we would normally carry with us and so we'll continue that route with the blended service. And I know that's not ideal for many of you. As I said, some of you would prefer to go one way or the other. But I think it helps us keep our hearts and minds on the things of God instead of on our human concerns. And So that's where we're going to be. That's where we're headed. We have a history here. We're well over a hundred years old now as a church, and that's a legacy that that's something that's beautiful and strong, but we need to be careful that we don't build ourselves up by simply living in the past. We need to look to the future. And I know that could be scary. I know there are things that uh, I'm going to address here in a little bit, things that uh, we may look at over the next year that might be frightening to many members in terms of some risk that we might be taking, some things we might be pursuing. But I think this passage also communicates to us that God already knows what we will face in the year ahead and he's already making provision for it. What's the passage here say? That he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things. He must die. Those are difficult things. Those are things that Jesus struggled with in many ways. That was the primary struggle of Jesus' temptation. I think that's why Jesus responds so strongly to Peter when he says, get behind me, Satan. Because what Peter was proposing was a very, very temptation that that pulled at Jesus to go the easier route, to go the different route. But Jesus had in mind not just those bad things, but also what. Verse twenty-one ends with and be raised on the third day. It's not just the difficulties we face; it's also the promises. It's also the the deliverance. It's also the miracles. It's also the, the 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 transformation that comes through facing some of these things. And I just want to encourage you as we as we think about some things that we might pursue, some things that we might undertake, some things that might be frightening. That God's already there. He's already made provision he's always made already made direction and he's already calling us to um, to new heights of who we might be as a church but we need to understand as well that sometimes rebellion is born in good intentions in this exchange in verse 22 and 23 I believe Peter had what he believed to be Christ's best interest at heart in his expressions. I don't believe it was uh, merely a, a, a uh, selfish attitude that led him to this, no, you you can't be crucified, Jesus. I believe it was very much a love for Jesus. And I believe that there are many times in the church that we have the best intentions Preserving certain things, protecting certain things. Keeping in mind certain things. We we have the intentions of of washing over these things, of of seeing through these things, and yet that could sometimes lead to what God doesn't want. And we need to be mindful of that. You see, part of Peter's correction, I believe, here is, is what? His expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to be. He has a certain mindset. This is who the Messiah is. This is what the Messiah is supposed to do. This is what the Messiah is supposed to accomplish. And because that is our tradition, that because that's what we've come to understand and that's what we've been taught and that's what we've come to expect, that must be the truth. And so his correction of Jesus is embedded in what? In this long-standing tradition of who the Messiah was supposed to be and what the Messiah was supposed to do. But that wasn't the truth of what the Messiah was. Not the total truth, at least. And because that's what Peter was holding on to, and that's what he was gripping so tightly, that's what led to what? Him being addressed to Satan. The ultimate expression of rebellion. And I think a lot of times in the church, as we, we gather around and we start to want to protect this tradition or that tradition. And, and there's nothing wrong with tradition in and of itself. Tradition has value. It, it has meaning. It, has, uh, it presents a, the, the reality of connection and belonging and history and all those things that are very important to our identity. But sometimes we protect them at the cost of what God would have us do and what God would have us follow and pursue, and we need to be careful about that. Even though our intentions are good, we need to be careful that we're not getting in the way of where God would have us go. Sometimes it's an attitude of presumption. I'm owed certain things. I've been in this church forever. I'm owed certain things. I've sacrificed for this church. I've given for this church. I've lived for this church. I've worked in this church. And again, thank you for all of that. But too often we take that mentality, and we move it to this level of presumption, because that's what I've done, I get to do certain things now that sometimes are not in line with what God would have me do. Peter certainly gets presumptuous here. says what? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now just think of that sentence. Peter has just said just a, a few moments before, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are God. That's what the Son of the living God means. That's what that phrase would have communicated in the Hebrew. Peter has just said that, and yet now he feels completely comfortable and saying, hey, hey, wait a minute, come over, come over here. I got something to tell you. You're, you're off base here, Jesus. You're off base here. And, and that, that phrase where he says, Lord, this will never happen to you, that, that's actually a Hebrew colloquialism. It, it, it Literally, it's may God be merciful to you. It, the closest equivalent we have probably in, in, in America in English is the southern will bless your heart. Okay? You know, when someone says what? bless your heart, they're they're, they're saying what? You're you're not really all that bright. You need a little bit of help there. And that's essentially what Peter is saying to Jesus. You're not real bright on this one, Jesus. You've kind of missed the mark here, Jesus. The whole idea carries with it this implication of, of Peter having the right to correct Jesus. He has a standing so often in the church, that's where we're at. Because I've been here forever, because I've sacrificed so much, I get the right to do certain things. If the Christian calling truly is dying to ourselves, then we never really have the right to do anything. We get the privilege, we get the blessing, but there's far too much discussion of of rights in the church. So, what are we going to do? We need to be patient, we need to be focused, we need to be driven by God's plan for our church and and we do a lot of things right let me just say that y'all love each other and that 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 does my heart good as a pastor to see the love that you have for each other um there's not there's not strife in this church and i know that hasn't always been the case here uh, but it certainly is the case now and and i praise god for that that is that's extraordinary y'all even for a church you know as small as this uh, to be uh, without strife is is just a blessing uh, beyond expression. Y- y'all are a giving church. Okay? When we have a need, when we have a uh, drive, when we have uh, just basic uh, week-to-week things, y'all give faithfully. Um, I don't have to preach sermons on giving because y'all are doing it. Um And and again, that's a blessing. Uh, Y'all are a praying church. Um, You know, when when those requests come out, um, I I know people are going to be praying in this congregation, and and I and I believe we've seen miraculous happen because of the praying of people in this church. We have some prayer warriors here, and that is that is a blessing. Um, Y'all love on. Your pastor and his family. Um, I've been I've had mixed bags of that over the years as a pastor in different churches, um, and I just want to say how grateful I am to, to how much y'all love me, and my wife, and my children, and have done so much for us. Thank you for all that. Y- y'all, there there are a lot of good things going on here. The unity. But there are some things that, that need to change. I think um, one of the things is, is just general participation. Y'all are good about Sunday morning. But we sometimes have some ministries here and some needs here that go unmet. We have a very few people who are doing a very lot of work. That wasn't good English, but Probably got across the idea. We we have we have um, individuals who are doing multiple tasks that really should be spread out among multiple people, and a lot of it's just because we don't have people who are willing to to take the time to do it. To be a member of the church is not just to be here on Sunday and not just to give and not just to pray and not just to fellowship; it's to work as well. It's, it's to take part in the ministries of the church. So I, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you to, to prayerfully consider what God would have you do here in our midst. What God would have you do um, as part of your ministry here and your work here. We need to uh, work on um, our outlook in terms of what our priorities are. A lot of our discussions here in this church, and this is true of churches all, all over the place. But a lot of our discussions about a church is what can we do for us? What can happen within these walls? And and, and we need to make some changes and some some uh, some things there to, to help needs be met better within the walls of this church. But folks, we have to develop an outlook that looks to our community, that's willing and ready to take the gospel to those that we interact with, that's that's ready to minister to the needs of our community, and in particular, be driven by a mindset of evangelism. We are not going to grow as a church if we're simply relying on transfer of membership from other churches. We're not the type of church that's going to attract huge numbers of people that way. We're just not. No matter what programs no and what steps we take, we're not going to be the church that, that people naturally pick because we have the programs and we have the opportunities have those sorts of things. We can do better, and that's part of the plan is to do better in many ways, but if we're going to grow as a church, it has to be by change lives. People who are not in churches. People who don't know Jesus. People who, who right now are, are in bed sleeping off a binge from last night if we're going to grow as a church, if we're going to survive as a church, it has to be from new converts. And the only way that's going to happen is if we get bold about sharing our faith. We don't live in a world where people are just going to come to church seeking anymore. That world's past. If we're going to make a difference, we have to be going out there. We have to be engaging them. We have to be talking to them. We have to be sharing with them. We have to be investing in them. We need to get better organized as a church. There's a lot of things that um, are kind of on cruise control in our church. And in some ways, that's a blessing, a benefit. But there are some things that um, we need to do in the realm of Sunday school, Bible studies. Um, we've got some. we got some new teachers coming on this year, um, um, in in different places. Um, looking forward to that, to what they add, to what they bring to situation, to our realities. Um, but we need. We need to. I'm going to encourage us this year to to revisit our Constitution bylaws. How many of you know we have a constitution bylaws? When I've looked over it it was it was probably a good constitution bylaws for who the church was in the eighties, but we're not that church anymore, and that model that was set up there doesn't really work. We need to look at revising it, revisiting it. That's going to require uh, a committee of uh, people who are willing to, to invest time in looking over these things, asking the questions, and putting the things together. We need some people who are willing to do that. That's not something that I should do by myself or mean the deacons or, or anything like that. That needs to be a congregation-wide reality. We need to have uh, our, our mindset driven by the things of God, in my own experience, in my own requirements and expectations. My commitment is in, in the year ahead to, to be a little bit more holistic in my sermons, a little bit more um, dealing with, with our culture, dealing with, with lives, not just so much on who we are as a church. we need to be in prayer about breathing life into this church. Again, a lot of great things are happening. We're seeing some movement. We're seeing the spirit, I believe, move in our midst. But as Tozer said, 100 religious persons knit into a unity by careful organizations does not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite for a church, for growth, is life, always life. We need that in our midst. We need a commitment to sacrifice wherever God leads us. In Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6, it says, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carry seed, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with That passage is essentially about sacrifice. If we want the blessings of the harvest, people being saved, baptism's taking place, growth occurring in our midst, it's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require us doing the uncomfortable. It's going to require us sometimes going, quote, hungry in terms of things that we may feel like we need so that somebody else eats or is blessed. I hope that metaphor hits with what I'm trying to say. There's a tribe of individuals a place called Sahel. It's part of the Sahara Desert. that's doesn't get a lot of rain. All the moisture comes in a four-month four month period from May through August. And after that, not a drop of rain falls for eight months. And so they have to build their whole life, their whole existence around that four-month period. And as you can imagine, things get pretty difficult in March and April because all the crops that they've grown, all the seed that they've grown throughout the the four months that started, it's getting thin. See, the, the year there hasn't been any produce, there hasn't been any rain, there hasn't been any harvest. And one of their traditions, one of their realities of how they've survived is that at the end of harvest, they always take a bag full of seed and they keep that seed protected and and set away for the next rainy season. And it's not uncommon for uh, the young boys and girls who, who are not aware of that practice or the reality of it, to to find that, that bag of seed, that bag of grain. And to go to their parents and say, why are we not having bread? We have all this grain in our barn. I've seen it there. I know it's there. I put my hand in the bag. I saw the grain. And the mother and father have to look at them and say, we can't touch that. That's next year's grain. And then there in, in April and May for that, for that father to, to take that grain that, that could feed his children that day, that week, that month, to take it and do what? They have to spread it out, throw it out, and hope what? That it grows. So they'll have grain for the next year. They're what? They're sowing in tears. I believe that's part of the imagery of the Psalter here, it, because it's, it's the same sort of society, same sort of culture. They're, they're, they're using this grain that they otherwise could have eaten, what? To plant for the future. And I think as a church, we need to keep in mind that sometimes we have to sow in tears. That is, sometimes we have to say goodbye or say no to certain things that are a part of our experience or a part of our enjoyment or a part of our whatever. To what? To plan for the future. To put that grain out there in faith to see what God's going to do in our midst. And I want to encourage you today, and this is a a, a challenge as much for me as it is for for anybody, to, 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 to think about what are some things that I'm holding on to? that I need to let go of so that we have a future. Whether that's comfort, always doing things the same way you've always done them, or whether it's some tradition or some other reality in terms of who we are as a church. As as some of these things begin to unfold this year as we present these opportunities and, and new programs and so forth, what are you doing? What am I doing? What am I sacrificing? We're starting the, the new young families ministry. They've decided to meet on Sunday afternoons, correct? Okay. Be in prayer for that ministry. Young couples, they they, they met a couple weeks ago and, and planned some things out. And some, of, some of our young families weren't there. Some of them were. But that's that's a big part of who we who are going to be in the future. We need that. What can you do to help with that? If nothing else, pray. But spend some time thinking about some things that you have to contribute here as a person with your gifts, your talents, your calling. We're going to do something a little bit different for our, our invitation today. We're not going to do an invitation per se. We're going to have our music come on up. Don and Drew and Miss Jean. We're going to have our music, but I want us just to stay seated. And just get with, if you're part of a family, get get with your family. If you're not right there, just between you and the Lord. Spend some time just praying for the coming year and asking God to show you where you might be able to sacrifice, what you may be able to do that you're not currently doing. That God would reveal to you in some ways in the coming months the role you can play here. Because, folks, this isn't just about Port Caddo's legacy or future. This is about God's calling and challenge to us, and if we are, if our mind is on the things of God or on the things of man, and we need to start the year off with our mind on the things of God, keep it there. So I'm going to Go ahead and start singing. Again, get get in your your little group there. Pray together. And uh, I'll close this here in just a few more.